middle of a good week. Wednesday night is always a wonderful time to come and get a little recharge for the remainder of the week. Isn't it amazing how quickly a week passes along, though, these days? You know, uh, someone once said that you have uh, time that moves quickly when you're having fun, but I just think time moves quickly, period, anymore, don't you? I look around the room, and there's answers to prayer here tonight. It's good to see Miss Becky back with us for the first time, I guess, since she had her surgery, and we praise God for that answer to prayer, and we'll have prayer time, obviously, in a few moments, and there's several things that we will pray for tonight, but it's always good when you can look out and see the obvious hand of God as He has moved in the midst of his people. On these Wednesday nights, as we talked about last Wednesday night, we're going to be looking at the teachings of Jesus that has to do with prayer. I think if you're learning to be uh, a better person of prayer, someone who engages prayer not only more often but more effectively, uh, it's probably a good thing to consider what Jesus had to say about prayer. So tonight we're going to be back in the book of Matthew. Last week I looked at a passage with you that's very familiar where the Lord just simply taught us to ask, seek, and knock from Matthew chapter 7 verses 7 and 8. But we're going to go backward in the book of Matthew to chapter 6 tonight. And we're going to look in chapter 6 at verses 5 through 8 as we see where Jesus really uh, begins to teach in a powerful and an authoritative way uh, regarding how we should pray. And so we'll actually be in Matthew chapter 6 for quite a while because tonight we're going to look at the first few verses of this section, verses 5 through 8, and then what follows right after verse 8 is the model prayer. A lot of people call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's a model that Jesus gave us that can be a pattern for us when we pray. But we're going to look at the verses tonight that precede that. So Matthew chapter 6 is our text, beginning in verse 5, and I'll read down through Verse 8, Scripture here says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. But not ye therefore like unto them. Be not ye therefore like unto them. 
For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. Let's just continue to read because after this, next week and following, we're going to uh, spend uh, quite a few weeks in the model prayer, but let's, let's just be reminded of the model prayer even though we won't really touch on it tonight. So Jesus said in verse 9, After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together and then we'll jump right in tonight looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Lord, I want to thank you that you are a good and a gracious God. And Father, thank you that tonight we can see answers to prayer. And Father, all through our lives we can trace those moments where you have intervened, where you have done things for us, Lord, because... You're good and you're gracious and because people in our lives have prayed for us and and we rejoice and praise you for that tonight. But Lord, we want to be better prayer warriors. Father, I pray that uh, tonight uh, there would be a group of people here in this room uh, that would go out and that, Lord, we would pray not just the way we want to pray, But Father, pray the way that Jesus has taught us to pray. So God, help our eyes to be open, our hearts to be receptive. And Lord, help us to grasp exactly what you want to teach us in this place tonight. Father, we love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name and amen. Now, let me tell you something up front about Wednesday nights. I really don't like to preach much on Wednesday night. I like to engage you in a conversation. So just know this, at any point, as we deal with things on Wednesday nights, if you want to interject something, if you want to ask a question, do it. Raise your hand so that I see you. If I don't see your hand raised, take a hymnal and pitch it toward me or something. And I will try my best to acknowledge you. And I know know that's a little different. You know, we come into... Uh, the auditorium like this, and we're used to singing together and then used to sort of being quiet and still and listen to somebody preach. Uh, but I would love to interact with you at any point as we uh, engage this teaching on prayer and how the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. So please do that. Can you do that? If you want to talk, talk. And I know we're online and that kind of thing. And so to make sure that people out there hear it, if you have a question, I'll repeat it on the microphone so they can hear and not be lost in the conversation. When we turn to Matthew chapter 6, what is this larger setting of Scripture that we turn to here in Matthew's Gospel? 
Where are we? You'll notice if you look in the chapter before, the chapter of Matthew 6, and then the chapter beyond, if you have a red-lettered edition of the Word of God, the wording is in what color? Red, because nearly all of these chapters uh, are teachings that come from our Savior Jesus. So what do we call this section of Scripture? There we go. I, I knew I would get it out of you. It's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is the largest consecutively recorded sayings or teachings from Jesus that you find in the Gospels in the Bible. So, uh, Sermon on the Mount. Now, why do we call it the Sermon on the Mount? Because, that's right, Jesus uh, used uh, sort of a mountain, and I I wish I could just pick you all up tonight and take you over to Israel with me and, and sit you right down on this very mountain. It's been identified, and so if you ever... Uh, visit Israel. I'm just curious, has anybody ever been over to the Holy Land? Okay, so I see a hand back there. Uh, I assume when you were in Galilee, you visited the area of the Sermon on the Mount. They actually call it the Mount of Beatitudes because of the first several verses here in Matthew chapter 5. But it's an interesting place because there on that hillside, that just naturally flows down to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's as if God created a natural, a natural amphitheater. And so it, it's sort of a concaved place in the hillside, and, and you can just see how all these hundreds of Galileans would have come from the area and from the countryside and, and flocked to hear Jesus teach in this place. Some scholars estimate that there was upward toward twenty or 25,000 people that came out to hear Jesus teach when he shared the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a key verse in the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually back in chapter 5, and it's verse 20 that is the verse that you need to think about anytime you study anything that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. It gets to the heart of what the Lord was trying to do when He taught this large set of teaching. Notice that verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5 says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So that is Jesus' purpose in really teaching everything that you learn from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says you have to have a righteousness that's better, that's more honest and real than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. What Jesus was saying there is that I want you to have a relationship with God and not just go through the motions 
of religion. And that's the religious day into which Jesus came when he was there in Israel in the first century. The scribes and the Pharisees uh, had developed over that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was right after Israel had been released from their Babylonian captivity and they had come back to Jerusalem. And you have this group of leaders who are saying, there's no way under our watch that we're ever going back into captivity. And so not only uh, were those people and those teachers uh, people who, who locked into the law that God gave, but then they, on top of that, developed a lot more laws. And so everybody, if they were going to be right with God, according to the scribes and the Pharisees, they had to do all of these laws that they had placed on the people, and it was quite burdensome. But Jesus comes along, and he begins to teach them it's not just about dotting the I's and crossing the T's, but it's about a righteousness that does not come from your head, but it's a righteousness that comes from your heart. And so Jesus tells them, unless your righteousness is a better righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to have a place in the kingdom of heaven. So remember that. Never forget that when you studied the Sermon on the Mount, the purpose of Jesus is to get down under that layer of law and that layer of religion and all the way down to the heart. And brothers and sisters, that's what God is looking for, isn't he? He's looking for those who will be related to him from the heart. I'll tell you this, you get the heart involved the way it should be involved, the head will follow. You believe that tonight? And so Jesus is saying, if you're going to pray in this passage of Scripture from Matthew chapter 6, you need to pray not from your head, but from your heart. And so I want to show you two negative things that Jesus teaches in this text of Scripture, and then we'll end on the positive thing. So the two negatives first. Number one, never pray to be seen or heard by others. Let me say it again. Never pray to be seen or heard by others. Now this is important, and I know it's easy for you and for me to uh, think about Jesus here and understand that He is tackling what had been laid on the people by the scribes and the Pharisees And it's easy for us to say, well, we're not like the scribes and we're not like the Pharisees. But I would say to you tonight, sometimes we can be like them. And so Jesus says, don't pray so that your prayer is to be seen and heard by others. Jesus uses that word hypocrite. He says, don't be a hypocrite in your prayer life. 
Now I want to hear from you. What is a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? That's right. Uh, someone who claims to be something, but their actions really don't show it. Any other thoughts? When you think about a hypocrite, what are other things that you think about? And who said that? Yes, an actor. As a matter of fact, the English word hypocrite is a transliteration. Now, you know, understand what I, what I mean by that. You know, some words in the Greek, when the translators translated the King James Bible and, and other versions, they, they use an equivalent English word. But right here, they literally transliterate the word because the Greek word is hypocrites. Now, that sounds a whole lot like hypocrite, right? <laughs> So hypocrite is literally a transliteration and the thought actor or a stage player even better is the exact thought that is behind that word hypocrite. It literally means, I want you to listen to this, an interpreter from underneath, an interpreter from underneath. Now let me explain that to you. Have you ever uh, visited a theater or maybe went into the drama or the theater department of a college and university and a lot of times in a logo or uh, even a piece of art on the wall you'll see these big masks. Uh, Maybe you've... uh, seen it in a movie where they were portraying ancient times. And so the, the Greek theater was very large and very successful. A lot of people would come to particular cities to go to the theater to watch a play. And because of those big theaters and lack of lighting like we have now, Often it was hard to see the actor, so what they would do is they would use these larger-than-life-size masks. So one mask might portray the thought of somebody being happy. Another mask might portray the thought of someone being sad or sorrowful. Another mask might portray the thought of someone being angry. And so you can look that up. You can get on Google tonight and look up Greek theater masks and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And so the actors in Greek theater, when they were acting out their plays, they would use these huge masks so that the person that was sitting way back there in the very back of the theater could see the kind of attitude or the feeling that the actor was trying to portray. And so the thought of interpretation from underneath is the thought of one of those actors playing to be something or someone he or she wasn't underneath that mask. And that's exactly 
what a hypocrite is. It's somebody who literally puts on a mask that other people can see and really underneath that mask, they're not at all what the mask is portraying. I used to own a hypocrite and I've lost it. Can't find it. I've had one too many moves or something and and it's become lost over time. Back years ago when I was a teenage boy, I was working in a grocery store and I was one evening stocking shelves. Anybody ever stocked shelves? You know what that's like. You, you sort of get into a routine and a rhythm with it. And I was stocking uh, the, the larger cans of uh, tomatoes. And so I was, you know, one after the next. And finally I reached down in the box and I pulled out of a can and my hand just flew up in the air because as I looked at the can and felt the can and shook the can, guess what? It was empty. It was empty. So I kept that can, and I took it home that night. And again, some of you knew my dad, and dad said, I want to keep that because that can is a great illustration of a hypocrite. You know, it, it was the can. It had the label around it that said Del Monte or whatever the brand was and tomatoes. But anybody who picked up that can could feel that it was not what it said it was. It was empty. And so Dad had it for a long time, and then after he retired, I found it in, in his study as we were packing it up from his last full-time church. And so I had it, and I can't find it anymore. But I wish I still had my hypocrite so that I could bring it to you tonight. It, it just helps you re- relate to the subject that we're talking about. But Dad would use it. He'd talk about a hypocrite. He'd take that can that I'd found years ago, and he'd throw it out in the crowd, and people would you know, pick it up and everything. But that's a good illustration. Uh, a hypocrite is behind the mask saying... I'm one thing, but really, if you were to be able to get under the label, under the mask, I'm not that at all. And so Jesus really goes for the jugular all through the Sermon on the Mount, but here he takes on particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. And literally, he's calling the scribes and Pharisees here hypocrites. And notice what he says they love to do. They love to stand in the synagogues or on the street corners and in those places they would pray out loud just so other people would hear them. And that's exactly what they would do. It was rude and it was considered absolutely unacceptable to interrupt somebody back in the first century in the Jewish world, when he or she was praying. Well, it would be a he. It actually wouldn't be a she because you ladies would never be allowed to pray out loud in their worship gatherings back in the first century. But the men, when they would take the floor, uh, they would begin to pray in a synagogue and they would pray on and on and on. It reminds me of a story that I heard from my college experience. 
Um, I went to Cumberland College. I know it's fancy now in University of the Cumberlands, but uh, I went to Cumberland College. We were the Indians, and one of the precious elderly ladies that had taught there for years and years and years. She taught another year or two after I started my freshman year. Her name was Miss Janie Hall. And Miss Hall started all of her class meetings with with prayer, and she would ask for a volunteer in the classroom to pray before she would start her lecture or whatever was going on. Well, it was a test day. And some smart aleck in the room agreed to pray. And you know what? It became much more than a prayer. It was a filibuster. (laughs) Because he took the floor, as it's told, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and poor old Miss Hall would never interrupt him. So he got them out of the test that day, but I'm told when they came back the next time, they still had the test. Miss Hall prayed that time. And I'm told that the the test was worse than it would have been if they'd just taken it that day. But that's what would happen in the synagogues. The leaders of the synagogues would, would stand and they would pray and they would go on and on and on and they would not be interrupted. Also, <clears throat> also the Greek, or, or excuse me, the Jewish leaders would often go out to these street corners in the cities and the towns around Israel, and and they would do that as well. They would stand and boisterously pray and pray and pray, and everybody would stand around and listen to them and hear them as they prayed, and they would go on and on. Well, uh, Jesus says that that type of praying is hypocrisy. And so the point is, Prayer should never, ever be a performance. Prayer should never be a performance. Now, I'm going to drill down a little deeper to where we live tonight, and I don't want to offend anyone because I've said this before, and I'm sure some of you have said it, but have you ever heard somebody say something like this? He prays the most beautiful prayers. You ever heard a comment like that? Somebody who's maybe eloquent in the way he words himself or she words herself, and and somebody will refer to that prayer as just being a beautiful prayer. Here's the question. Is it really? And the answer is, we don't know. Because we do not judge the sincerity of another's prayer. Now, just because it's well-worded and eloquent, it may be a great prayer. I'm not saying to you, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that a well-worded public prayer is not an earnest prayer. But here's what I am saying. The way it's worded, the inflections used, Anything else about that prayer other than is this person praying from his or her heart to his or her father? Anything else about that prayer at the end of the day is really irrelevant. 
There's only one person who can judge a prayer. And who's that? It's God. The only prayer that God judges as a worthy prayer is a prayer that's sincerely prayed from somebody's heart. It's not about eloquence. It's not about phrasing. It's not about inflection. But it's all about praying from your heart. If your prayer is prayed to be seen and heard by other people, the moment they see you and the moment you, they hear you, that's exactly when you get your reward. And that what Jesus says? Jesus says that verily I say unto thee, or unto you in verse 5, they have their reward. If the prayer is all about being seen and heard by other people, the moment they're seen, the moment they're heard, that's when they get their reward. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So sometimes that happens, particularly with we Bible teachers and preachers. You know, we'll conclude a, a message and then we want to reiterate everything that we just said or encapsulate it, maybe not completely reiterate it, but to at least encapsulate it in our prayer. And and honestly, and again, the purpose tonight is not to pick apart anyone's prayer. The idea is, and we we don't want to overcomplicate it, because the idea is from the heart and sincerity. That's what matters. But no, we, we, uh, we don't educate God. So when we pray, let's answer this question, to whom are we praying? God. We pray to an audience of one. Now other people may hear, other people may participate uh, as that person's praying in an attitude of prayer, but ultimately, we're praying to an audience of one, and we're not praying to regurgitate something we've tried to say and maybe we thought we could say it better in a prayer. That, that's honestly not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is to communicate to the Lord. And you're right, Spurgeon did have a lot to say about that. All right. Any other thoughts about the heart of prayer as far as the, the intention. It's not that we're to be seen or heard uh, by others, but the intention of prayer is to be heard by God from a sincere heart. So that's the first negative. Never pray to be seen and heard by others. But the second negative, we're going to skip over verse 6 and come back to it in a moment. But the second negative is never pray to impress God. 
So when we pray, it's not about what others think. And it's also never to try to impress God. And that is what Jesus is talking about in verses 7 and 8. Let's be reminded of what he says. He says, but when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. So who are the heathen? I grew up thinking I was one. Because every now and then, you you have to know this, this will come out a lot, particularly on Wednesday nights, but uh, I, I was really shaped by my early childhood, uh, and I, I suppose we all are, but I was very shaped by my grandparents because, you know, for the first 10 years of my life, I lived just exactly across the street from Mamma and Papa. And boy, life was good. I was the favorite. You can't believe that, can you? But I really was. I tell you, I tell you how much of favorite of Mamaw's I was. She would have things for me, particularly bugles. You know the little snack bugles. I still love bugles to this day. And back then they came in boxes, almost like a cereal box. You remember those? And Mamaw would always have me bugles, and she keep the, she kept them hid from the other grandkids. So Mamaw loved me. Until she didn't. <laughs> and I, I remember that was one of the things that Mamma would say if you were acting up and she didn't approve of your behavior. Mamma would say, you little heathen. <laughs> so I sort of grew up thinking I was a heathen. But who are the heathen? Jesus says we shouldn't pray like the heathen. So who in the world are the heathen? Any thoughts? Another, go ahead. The unbelievers. uh, Another way of translating the word for heathen is Gentiles, which is one and the same unbelievers, uh, people that didn't have the proper revelation of God. And so particularly in the Jewish mindset, they thought in their immediate context... And that would have been the Greeks uh, and then ultimately the Romans. And so, you know, the Greeks had their pantheon of false gods and then the Romans took those same false gods and just gave them Roman names, but ultimately they, they were basically the same. And the heathen would have been the people in that Mediterranean context that would worship the false Greek and then Roman gods. And a part of their worship practice would have been praying to those false gods. And often when they would pray, a characteristic of that prayer would be to work into this 
rhythmic repetition. And so the worshipers of the false gods would, would get into one of these roles and it was sort of a psychological thing and, and the repetition would come over and over again. Often they'd work themselves into frenzies, very emotional thing. And they thought if they kept it up long enough, if they repeated themselves often enough, ultimately the false god to whom they were praying would hear and answer their prayer. It's not just from uh, the Romans who got their practice in religion from the Greeks, but also uh, there in that Canaan area, the Canaanites. You know, when they would worship the Canaanite gods like Baal and Ashtoreth, that was part of their practice as well. You remember on Mount Carmel when Elijah is in that contest with the prophets of Baal? Do you remember how he teased them a little bit? You know, pray harder, pray louder. Maybe Baal's in the restroom relieving himself. Maybe he's taking a nap. You know, just keep it up because that was their practice. And again, on Mount Carmel, Elijah was proving what? It doesn't matter how long you pray or how many times you repeat yourself or how loud you do it or how fast you do it. Baal's never going to answer your prayer because Baal is a false god. So you can see it even in the worship of the Canaanite gods, but particularly the heathen, the Gentiles, in that immediate culture around Jesus, that's what they would do. They would work themselves into these frenzies of praying, and it made its way into the practice of the Jewish religion. And and here's what I'll tell you. It's still there to this day. So anytime I take a group to Jerusalem, you know, one of the highlights of being in Jerusalem is going down to the Western Wall. And often people refer to that as the Wailing Wall. That's because Jews from all over the world will come and they'll congregate at that leftover remnant of uh, the platform of the Temple Mount. You see, there's no temple in Jerusalem anymore. There hasn't been since 70 A.D., but that's what they have, and so it's the most holy site to the Jewish people. So even to this day, you can go to the Wailing Wall, to the Western Wall, and, and you will see particularly the Orthodox Jews as they work themselves, often they'll rock back and forth and they'll pray these repetitive prayers and it's almost like they work themselves into a frenzy. And so it made its way, that style of praying made its way into the Jewish religion and honestly, and I won't go into a lot of detail here, it, it has made its way into Christianity. I've been in worship services before and heard people, and, and listen, I'm not picking on anybody tonight because I, I know that sometimes people think they're doing the right thing 
because it's what's been taught to them. And so even in Christian churches sometimes, you, you'll be in a prayer meeting and you'll hear people get into this repetition kind of thing and they work into that rhythm and ultimately they're saying the same things over and over again as if they keep doing it long enough and they're going to impress God. Well, Jesus says when you pray, keep it simple. Yes. Let me, one more time. The proper ending of prayer. When you have... When you have brought your heart to the Lord in prayer, whatever's on your heart, whether it's just a prayer to praise Him, and you've done that, whether it's just a prayer uh, of supplication for God to do for you or for somebody else what they need in their life, I think once you've expressed it to the Lord, you've prayed your prayer. Uh, You know, if you mean by the ending of prayer... Um, saying in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, I think that is wonderful. I don't think it's necessary, you know, because praying in Jesus' name, again, has everything to do with what's coming from your heart and how you're connecting to God. Here's the bottom line. We cannot connect with God truly, unless we're praying through the completed work of Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to be praying in Jesus' name. I would say this. I think sometimes we misunderstand that just putting on the end of our prayer, in Jesus' name I pray, amen, makes it a bona fide prayer. When if in our prayer we're truly not praying in Jesus' name, just saying those words doesn't get it through. Does that make sense? So, I think a proper ending to a prayer is when you've expressed your heart to the Lord. You know, here's, here's something, and you can research it in the writings of Paul or wherever you want to look in the New Testament. Um, there, there is nothing anywhere about how long your prayer is supposed to be. Anybody want to challenge me on that? I mean, if I'm missing something, let me know. But I I don't find anywhere in the New Testament where the Bible is teaching us that, that we have to pray for this amount of time or that amount of time or particularly at this time or at another time. I don't see that. What I do know that the Bible teaches us is to pray without ceasing, which does not mean that we can pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's not what the Bible teaches us, but the Bible teaches us to always maintain an attitude of prayer. I'll tell you this, Miss Judy. I think some of the most powerful prayers I've ever prayed have been some of the shortest prayers I've ever prayed. drive up and down I-75 a little bit, 
and you'll learn that. You ever been going down the road and the only thing you can get out is, Oh Lord, help me. And he does. I'll tell you this, back in June, uh, Amy and I were making a trip, and of course, they still are, but our emotions were particularly raw at that time, and we were running on fumes, you know, weren't sleeping well and that kind of thing, and we had left out one morning, and we were headed down to uh, South Alabama, to the Gulf side of Alabama, and we were down just south of uh, Nashville when yours truly fell asleep at the wheel. And then all of a sudden I hear that, you know, and thank God for those rumble strips on the road anymore because they're a pretty good signal. But I overreacted, you know, I hit that and it, it woke me up and I, you know, and then when I did that, you know, I had my cruise set at about 85 miles an hour. <laughs> and that was, that was an overcompensation when I did And then all of a sudden, I was, I was just out of control in my trucks. And I just prayed the Lord help. I mean, God help us because I didn't. But, you know, I prayed. And all of a sudden, the car straightened up. And I'm thankful. I did not say in that prayer, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. I didn't say it in that prayer. I just said, Lord, help me. And, and he did. So sometimes the briefest prayers we pray are the best prayers. Sometimes your heart is full. We need to quit so that we can pray together tonight, but your heart is full and and you have a lot of needs. And you take those to the Lord in prayer. Um, What Jesus is teaching us here, it's not the length nor the brevity of our prayers that impresses God. Again, it's the heart. And that leads us up to lesson number three in the text. So number one, we don't pray to be seen or heard by others. We don't pray to try to impress God. But number three, and this is the positive one, we always pray simply expressing our hearts to God. I told you we'd go back up to verse six. But thou... Now, who's Jesus talking to here? He's talking to his followers. Those people that would come out and listen to him teach this, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to us, his disciples. And so Jesus is pointing the finger. (laughs) And always remember when the preacher points a finger at you, there's three coming back at him. But Jesus says, but you, you, you. You, you, when you pray, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father which is in secret, and the Father 
which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Just a couple of quick things. This should not be seen as a prohibition against public or corporate prayer. Jesus is not saying that you should never pray in public. And Jesus is not teaching us that we shouldn't have corporate prayer meetings because we see that all through the New Testament, book of Acts. Let me just give you a couple of them. Acts 1.14, the Bible tells us that they, before the Spirit comes, they continued with one accord, how? In prayer and supplication with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. So they prayed together. Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. So they prayed together. Acts 4.31, I love that passage. I can't say much about it or I'll keep you too long tonight. But in Acts chapter 4, you remember Peter and John are released and they come back into the fellowship. And the Bible says in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. Wow, that we could have that type of prayer. Earnest, sincere prayer together to the point that the place is shaken. Think about the Haystack prayer meeting. You may not know this, but the modern missions movement was all started in the summer of 1806 where a group of Williams College students, five students, gathered to talk about missions. A storm came up. They found refuge under a haystack. And there they had prayer together. And the whole modern missions movement followed from that. So Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't pray together, that we shouldn't pray out loud, that we shouldn't have corporate prayer. Again, the key is what I said earlier. Effective prayer is a matter of the heart. And so it's an illustration. When you get into a closet, and I know some people take this very literally, and it's a good thing. If you want to have a special prayer place in your home, I've got a dear friend who has taken one of the walk-in closets in their home, and he's made that his prayer place, and that's fine. But Jesus is simply teaching us here, when you get down into a closet... They didn't have walk-in closets. They would just be little tiny spaces where they would store things. When you get into that little tiny space and you close the door behind you, who else is there? It's just you and it's God. And the point is this. That's how we're supposed to always pray, as if it's just us and God. Even if it's a corporate setting, even if it's, you know, uh, a time of prayer where a lot of people are going to be hearing you and listening to what you said, the bottom line is we pray as if it's just us and God, a matter of the heart. Anytime we pray, whether it's public or private, we should remember that we have an audience of one. And you're not the audience, and I'm not part of the audience, 
when we pray, the audience is God and only God. So it can get challenging. I'll tell you this, and then we'll have prayer time. When I was pastoring in Lexington, I was asked by an official to pray at a civic gathering. And I said, of course, I'll be there, I'll pray. And then a day or two later, I got this email that told me how I should pray. I'm not kidding you. They, they knew they were asking a Baptist preacher to pray in their meeting. They knew that from the beginning. And then I get an email that tries to instruct me how I should pray and what I should say and what I should not say. And I could go on and on about it, but I'll tell you, one of the instructions was, do not pray in the name of Jesus, Miss Judy. So I just politely replied to that email, and I said, you've asked the wrong guy to come pray. Because it's my conviction that when I pray, it's not like rubbing a lucky rabbit's foot in front of people. And I only know one way to pray, and that's to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. So I'm sorry, I must decline your invitation because I cannot just stand in front of a group of people and do what you're asking me to do. Because here's what I believe. I believe if I stand in front of a group of people and I pray, I'm not praying to them. Nor am I really praying to be heard by them. But I'm praying to an audience of one. And he's a lot more important than to them. Thoughts, comments, questions, elaborations. I don't have a whole lot of time for elaborations. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. Let's uh, conclude our time together tonight by putting into practice what we've been talking about. Let's, let's have a moment of prayer before we leave. Um, again, we continue to pray for Becky and her healing. Good to see her out tonight. Uh, we pray with the Pattons. Hank's here tonight and uh, most of you, if not all of you, know that Susan lost her mother today and the uh, funeral will be coming up on Saturday. Hank, anything you want to, to add to that? And so let's, let's pray for them and all that family. I had a good time visiting with uh, Miss Grace in the hospital today and Mr. Bob, and uh, let's continue to pray 
for her and for Mr. Bob. So we, we have several needs on our hearts. What, what are others uh, beside those that I've mentioned that you think of tonight that, that you want to include in our prayer time? Pray for him. Jonathan Bishop. Okay. Just remember him in our prayers. Anyone else? Yes. Okay. All right. Anyone else? I thought I saw. Okay. We'll keep them in our prayers. Anyone else? Yes. Who who now? Okay. Yep. Have it, has anyone heard the arrangements? It was today. Okay. Visitation and funeral walling. Okay. I talked to Bill, but didn't understand that arrangement. Anybody else? Yes. Anybody? Yes. Biopsy. Okay. Yeah, Pastor Travis. Uh, has anybody heard arrangements on that? It's in Indiana, right? Saturday as well. Okay. Anybody else? Yes. Okay. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. Oh my. Where was that? Okay. Yeah. Anyone else? Pray for a group of students. I got to speak. 
to an FCA meeting yesterday at Somerset High School, and uh, I'm, I get a lot of those opportunities to share uh, Andrew's testimony and our story, and uh, so presented the gospel to a packed auditorium of uh, high school students yesterday, and um, they were so receptive so, you know, uh, listening closely to what we had to say and uh, talk to a few as they left and just pray that there, there would be good things to come from those opportunities. Anybody else? Someone already mentioned an unspoken prayer request. You might have one and you just want to acknowledge that. All right. Let's all stand together, if you would, and you're able, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Y'all bear with me. We, uh, we'll get into a routine where we have more time to pray. I went a little over time, but your fault because I let you ask questions and say things, but, you know, I, I'm really good at deflecting. You'll, <laughs> but let's, let's do have... Uh, prayer together before we leave. I'll lead us as we pray from our hearts. Lord, uh, thank you that we can pray. And forgive us, Father, for not praying more. Lord, help us to be known as people of prayer. And Father, you have heard every request that's been mentioned tonight. Thank you, Lord, for what Jesus taught us. And we don't have to inform you of anything you already know. And so, Lord, you've heard the names that have been called out. And you know the need in each heart and each life. And we pray, Father, that you, according to your will and your grace and mercy, that you would meet those needs. Father, you're aware of each unspoken concern that's represented here tonight. And we hold those up to you. We pray, Father, that again you would, according to your will, meet those needs. Father, be with those who are grieving, who have lost loved ones. Be with those who are recovering, those who are in the hospital, who are sick. Father, be the great physician, we pray. And Lord, we just pray that you... Lead us as we leave this place tonight. Help us, Lord, to be your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, the body of Christ that you've called us to be in this lost and dying world. Father, be glorified by what we do, our actions and our reactions, and help us to always represent our Savior. Father God, burden our hearts for the lost, for those who do not know you. And help us, Lord, to be bold to share the witnesses that we need to share. God, we love you. We thank you for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.